0: Oh, yeah. Episode 234 is about to begin with Sue Falzone. She is one of my idols in the industry because I've been following her work since probably when I started. And honestly, she is what I call a physio ninja. She bridges the gap between rehab and performance and can speak to the coaches everyday people and makes sense when it comes to rehab and training and just everything in life. Honestly, she's an educator. She's just brilliant. Go pick up her book if you're interested at all in learning more about the rehab side. Super, super excited to share this interview with all of you. Here we go. Hello, boys and girls. Welcome back to another episode of Cut to Shit, Get Fit. I'm your lovely host, Rafal Matuszewski, and joining me today is a legend, Sue Falzone. Say hello.
1: Hi there. It's so great to be on the show. Thanks for having me.
0: No problem. So I always like to start the show with easy questions. So the first okay. one is, what are you currently reading or listening to?
1: Ooh, currently reading or listening to? That's actually a hard question. I'm reading, <laughs> right now I'm actually reading um, a, a murder mystery novel. Nice. Uh at night and then what am I reading for my um oh I'm reading medical medium have you heard of that the no. so yeah um I don't have an opinion on it yet I'm not saying go out and get it but um <laughs> it's, it's interesting stuff though he's uh he's exactly that medical medium I started following him on Instagram and he's got some really interesting things from a nutritional perspective and as far as like gut health and disease processes and those sorts of things Mm -hmm. so um, that's currently what I'm reading and then in my queue the next thing is I just ordered the plant paradox so reading a lot of nutritional type stuff right now for some reason
0: (laughs) (laughs) I was just gonna ask like why did you go down the nutritional route
1: (laughs) I I don't know you know I go in these like My morning readings flow from either something like super spiritual or something super business-like to something nutritional and health-like, those sorts of health things. And Mm -hmm. I just kind of ebb and flow between my morning coffee readings. But that's usually how I start my day is a cup of coffee, sitting in the backyard with my uh, my dog and just taking, you know. 20 to 30 minutes to just sort of read something that kind of frames my mind for the day, so.
0: Awesome. Uh, So the next one is, what is the current TV series you're watching, or if you're one of those people who don't watch anything?
1: It's so funny. I just finished watching Santa Clarita Diet.
0: Awesome. Nice.
1: I totally just binged the whole thing, like all four seasons in like three days. It was wonderful. Um, And it's funny because it started off, I was like, oh, I'm not sure if I'm going to like this, but everybody says such good things about it that Mm -hmm. I just forced myself to kind of kept going. And by episode three, I was like, oh yeah, I'm all in. I want to see where this is going to go. So it was pretty good.
0: So if you had to choose like, Your most favorite TV series of all time? What would it be, and why?
1: Oh gosh, it's 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 actually not. Oh, it's not. Friends.
0: (laughs) Friends. Okay. Yeah,
1: I watch Friends on repeat, over and over and over again, partially because um, I don't want to get wrapped up in a lot of new TV series, Mm -hmm. and so like I can watch Friends without attachment. And I've seen every episode a thousand times, so I don't get much time to sit and just watch TV. So when I do, I don't want to get attached to like a new yeah. thing because then it's like I don't want to want to sit around and watch TV. So I'm like, I'll just watch Friends for the 800th time and just <laughs> not get attached to it.
0: <laughs> See, I'm the same way, but for The Office, I'll like always have it playing in the background. I absolutely love that show.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah, for sure. But I'm really starting to do the same thing with Schitt's Creek. Have you seen that show?
0: No, what's that about?
1: Oh my gosh, it's hilarious! It's um, I don't know, which channel, it's on Netflix, but it's called Schitt's Creek. S C H I T T S Creek, <laughs> and it's about this this family, and they had a bunch of money, and somehow it, they lost all their money, and so now they're living in Schitt's Creek, and it's it's hilarious. that the, the the characters are perfectly played. So now I'm kind of rewatching all of that. Nice.
0: All right, so last easy question. What do you got planned for the weekend?
1: Ooh, weekend. Great question. I'm home this weekend, which is nice, very, nice. very rare. Um, so I have a feeling, and then I leave Monday for three weeks. So my weekend is going to be filled with laundry, packing, and probably drinking from my wine fridge and there enjoying time you with you. <laughs> <dog. laughs>
0: Actually, that's a good question. If you had to recommend a bottle of wine to a friend or someone that's asking your recommendation, what would it be?
1: Ooh, there's so many good ones. Um, well, my first question is always give me a color. Do you like white, rosé, or red? Um, and I've got some great uh, Pinot Noirs that are my go-tos. The Enroute Pinot Noir is probably my favorite Pinot Noir of all time. Um, and then I love a good Sauvignon Blanc, uh, White Haven Savion Blanc from New Zealand. is always an easy drink and one of my favorites. Nice. Uh, so, yeah, it just kind of depends what you like.
0: Okay, fair enough. Um, so before we get any further, let's do a little intro of who you are, what you do, and how did you get into this industry?
1: Yeah. Um, so, yeah, Sue, uh, you know you know my name. Um, I started off as a physical therapist and um, went to PT school up in Damon College in Buffalo, New York, which is where I'm from and then went and worked at a clinic down in North Carolina. And I loved the people that I worked with. Everybody was great, but I quickly realized that like outpatient orthopedics was not what I wanted to do. Um, So I found out about a program at the University of Chapel Hill That had a dual major program that allowed a PT to enter into um, the human movement program and specialize in sports medicine. So I double majored in grad school. um, Was satisfied all the requirements for the athletic training degree. So I actually got my athletic training degree second, my PT degree first, um, and got my athletic training degree during that time. um, Sat for my CSCS as well, and then moved out to North Carolina on, or moved out to Phoenix on a whim. And was actually reading an article about Omar Garcia Parra, and who he trained with, and I was like, because I was a huge Red Sox fan, and I was like, wow, Omar trains out this way. And so he was training with a guy named Mark Verstegen at Athletes Performance, so I totally cold-called Mark and just showed up at the door. and. Brandon Marcello was there, and Brandon took me around and introduced me to Luke Richeson and Daryl Leto and uh, Roger Schoenhorst and, you know, a couple of the guys that were working there and Mark. And so then I just started volunteering there um, several days a week, and my time there just started to increase. And I think by by September, Mark realized I wasn't going to go away, so he gave me a job and um, started working at Athletes Performance, which is now known as EXOS, and started working there. I was there for 13 years and um, left there as a vice president. I think five years ago or so. Um, and during that time, I had the opportunity to start to work with the LA Dodgers, which was really cool. And um, began working with them through Athlete's Performance, and we um, eventually I eventually grew that relationship to the point where I then became the head athletic trainer for the LA Dodgers, which was really neat and did that for a couple years but I was with the Dodgers for a total of six years and then um, being vice president of a really large company and head athletic trainer for a major league baseball team are not two jobs you should have at the same time (laughs) so I quit both those and did my yoga teacher training and zoned out a little bit because I was super stressed out thought I committed career suicide I was like what have I done who quits those two jobs Um, and then Became the head athletic trainer and had a sport performance for the U.S. men's national team for soccer. And so did that for a little bit and then um, had the opportunity to start my own education business. I started teaching dry needling and um, then had the opportunity to start my own education business about two and a half years ago. And um, also started working at AT Steel University, which is where I'm at today. and. Um, Uh, I'm an associate professor in athletic training in the athletic training departments here and um, then also have structure and function education. Right now we teach mostly dry needling, but um, we have a new curriculum coming out this year all around bridging the gap from rehab to performance, which is the book that I wrote last year. Uh, So we'll have some educational curriculum coming out there. So structure and function education is definitely in a transition phase, kind of moving from a dry needling education company to just an education company. Uh, Well, not just, but it's going to be like just a broader education company, which is really exciting. So a lot of different things. It's been kind of a crazy path. Um, Lots of fun, lots of different things. I consult right now with different teams and organizations. I've worked in um, the NFL. I've worked in the MBA, um, and yeah, so now I just um, kind of have like a concierge practice. So I, I tend to go to guys' houses and work with them on a, on a every level from like recovery and regeneration and re, and healing and sort of all of those things. Performance um, and kind of have like a little strange concierge practice right now, which is really cool. So I still practice. Um, I don't know, practice daily, but I practice weekly, and that's really important to me as an educator. I just never want to be an educator who doesn't have their hands on people and is sort of not always kind of staying in touch and, and have a pulse on what's happening in the field. So that was a really long answer so where I am and who I am and where I've come from.
0: <laughs> well, that's awesome though. Like the, you're like the perfect guest, you know, a- ask one question and have the person talk for 20 minutes and then move on. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: We'll have three questions by the time we're done.
0: Yeah. Um, so I'm going to try to unravel all that. Cause I was like a lot of information, but I'm kind of curious to so what drove you down the physical therapy route. Like, you know you're out of high school like what was kind of going through your mind what made you choose that route to kind of begin your journey
1: yeah i i really enjoyed i always wanted to do something in medical and i thought ideally i was going to be an orthopedic surgeon that's that's really what i wanted to do i thought when i graduated high school um during high school i played soccer and i was horrible and uh, i had a hamstring injury so i had to go to physical therapy and so, you know, like most people, you kind of encounter a profession, and you're like, "Oh, this might be cool to do." And so, there's a four-year program at um, at Damon College, which is where I work, is where I went to school, and I thought maybe I'll do this right if I do undergrad for physical therapy which I seem to really like and then I can sit for my cats and go to med school as opposed to doing biology as an undergrad degree and then potentially not really being able to have a job if I didn't get into med school so I thought well I'll do PT first and then I'll do medical school after and I quickly realized in PT school because PT school is my undergraduate degree so you got into things pretty quickly and uh, I really realized fast that, that I didn't want to become a, a surgeon. Um, surgeons didn't get to do what I like to do, which was engage with the patient and get to know their story and get to know them and have a lot of hands-on time. And so I quickly realized that, that being a surgeon was not the path for me and that I really loved physical therapy and sort of being able to, uh, to connect with people and kind of help them through the healing process.
0: Awesome. Awesome. Um, the other thing too is like you have more of like a sports background and I find like in at least here in British Columbia and Vancouver some physios don't really kind of go on the edge of exercise and rehab they kind of just stick to the manual therapy so I'm kind of curious of what made you interested in the sports background
1: yeah I have always been a fan of sport, obviously. Um I was a horrible athlete. So, you know, those who can't do tend to teach. Um, and so love. And then I think that's why I kind of became an athletic trainer because I really liked the concept of working at that high level um, and that fine tuning, right? Not that I didn't like working with general population, but um hopefully this doesn't come out the wrong way. I just I didn't feel in the setting that I was in at the time, I didn't feel super challenged and that was just a function of the setting that I was in. Um, and and there was a lot of, um, car accidents and, and whatnot and and people, I, I kind of felt at the time that people were getting better sort of in spite of me. Right. And so I kind of wanted to fine tune and I wanted to work at just sort of a different level. And, um, had that opportunity to go back to athletic training and kind of really focus on the sport aspect of things. And then when I got the opportunity to, to start to work at, at Athletes Performance, um, you know, and just being surrounded in that culture. And and during grad school, I also, like I said, had gotten my, my CSCS, so I started doing some personal training just because I needed money. Um, and I really liked that, and I thought that was really fun. And so then when I got to that opportunity to work at Athletes Performance, and the reason I was so excited to work for Mark, um, um, there's a lot of reasons I was excited to work for Mark Crossdagen, but um, one of the reasons was he never asked me to choose any job that I was looking at. I either had to choose to be a PT and athletic trainer or a strength coach, and I really wanted to be all three because I liked aspects of personal training and strength and conditioning, and I liked aspects of physical therapy and rehab, and I really liked athletic training and be a part of a team atmosphere and, and sort of the emergency. Care and um, triage that kind of comes along with being an athletic trainer, and so like Mark was the first encounter I had that he didn't ask me to choose the letters after my name that I wanted to define me. He was like, "You can be all three of those things here," and so that really is what attracted me to athletes' performance, and it it just turned into this monstrosity um, that's now known as Exos, and so. Um, yeah, it just was really, really fun. to Then to, the Once I got that got there, we had so many different athletes from baseball and football and basketball and golf and tennis. And so, you know, you just kind of start going down that, that path, and it just was really, really fun. Every day was super fun to work.
0: Awesome. I'm, like, super pumped to talk to you because you're more exercise-based as a physical therapist. And like I mentioned before, there's a lot of physios out there that kind of tend to all needle you, all mobilize you, and now you're out the door, and they don't really kind of reinforce that new range of motion or anything with any kind of exercise. And like after been me following your work, I was like, it'd be really cool if I could team up with a practitioner to kind of blend those things together. And I actually did that last year with a chiropractor and every patient that comes in that's been with other physios and chirals are like, this is so cool. You're taking me to the gym and you're looking at my back squat. No one's ever looked at my back squat because my low back hurts or whatever blah 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 so it's really cool to see how you kind of mesh that so I guess my kind of question is like for the physios out there and other chiros that kind of just do manual therapy how much are they leaving on the table if they spend a little bit more time teaching someone an exercise could actually benefit the rehab process
1: yeah, I think you're leaving a lot on the table, right? Because at the end of the day, it's about movement for all of our clients, right? I don't care if you're my 75 year old mom or my 25 year old professional basketball player, right? Like. It's about movement. When we stop moving, we stop living. And so we have to get our patients moving. And so my manual therapy, right, and I needle all the time. I mean, I own a needling education company. I, I love sticking needles in people. But, <laughs> um, but you know, it's not about putting needles in people. I put needles in people or do manual therapy because it enhances their movement. And so if I don't, right, it decreases their pain and it can enhance their movement. And so if I don't follow that up with exercise, I'm, I'm really missing the entire boat and I think that we have to teach our patient if I put a needle in someone or do manual therapy in someone and I give them more range of motion and then I don't teach their nervous system how how to utilize that new range of motion they're just going to go right back to what they were before and so that that exercise component in my opinion is absolutely key if we're going to try to really change people's motor patterns um, and how they function and and really that's what rehab and, and therapy is all about
0: right 100 percent um so now talking about dry needling like what drove you that direction because i know in like certain states you're not allowed to needle here in canada i think every province you're allowed to needle so i'm kind of curious what drew you to that kind of modality
1: yeah yeah needling in the united states um is a little drama filled <laughs> <laughs> unfortunately um and yeah, it, I started working um, with needles. Uh, I was I was um, I, I learned about ten years ago um, how to needle and sort of started employing that into my practice pretty quickly. And, and I just found that it, my my needling practice. Change over the course of a decade, and I find that the needle really provides a novel stimulus to the system. Right? There's so many things. I mean, we could just talk about physiology on a on a um, spinal cord level, on a on a local level, on a systemic level, all the endogenous opioid things that happen, and the descending inhibitory pain control mechanisms, and and all of the different things that sort of happen from a physiological standpoint to, to manage pain and cortisol and and all of those things. But the really cool thing that needles also do is, it, like I said, it provides a novel stimulus. So there's so Many times, where um, I'll put a needle in somebody's, let's say, you know, we'll say shoulder. So, a baseball guy is a great, great example a lot of baseball players have limited shoulder internal rotation range of motion. And so in the past, I used to spend 20 minutes doing manual therapy and doing my, you know, my joint mobilizations and my stretching, and my joint mobilizations and my stretching, right? And so now what I started to fa- what I found out pretty quickly is if I put a couple needles into somebody's shoulder and all of a sudden they gain 15 degrees of range of motion or 20 degrees of range of motion, well, a couple things, right? Either needles are magic or it's not what you thought they were. So, or it's not what you thought it was, right? So, if I put a couple needles in someone and they get an immediate change of range of motion, that's not a structural issue. That's a neurological issue. And all I did was change the sensory input into the system and therefore I changed the motor output. So now I abandon my manual therapy. I don't do any more manual therapy and I go right to exercise because I've got to teach that. That nervous system, how to work in the new range of motion. So absolutely 100% to me, needling can be, um, there's a lot of mechanical things that happen. There's a lot of chemical things that happen. There's a lot of systemic things that happen, but there's a lot of neurological things that happen too. And I'm always surprised. There's times where I put a needle into someone and I think, oh, this isn't going to change anything. This is 100% a structural issue. And then they gain 20 degrees of range of motion. And I'm like, oh, geez, okay, I was wrong on that one too, right? This is a was a neurological tone or neurological hold that the body had. And so, um, so yeah, I, I just think the more I, I needled and I saw the power of it on a lot of different levels, um, my interest in it just grew and I used to teach for another company. And then, like I said, had that opportunity to do my own thing. And, um, it's just something I'm super passionate about and really spending time in other countries, um, um, in the UK, um, and in Spain. And I'm going to Italy in a couple of weeks to, to learn some more needling stuff and really just kind of learning from my own understanding. I, I love the concept of Eastern and Western medicine. You know, Eastern medicine, um, they had so much of it right. And what we do in Western medicine is we try to reverse engineer what what they have observed for thousands of years in Eastern medicine. And so there's just such an amazing blend there. And and that's why I like yoga. And that's why I like um, instrument assisted right which is known as Gua Sha and, and I like the meditation and I, I like all of those sort of eastern medicine type things that I think blend really really well in terms of western medicine if you just sort of take the time to sit back reverse engineer it and then accept, just the, accept the things that we haven't reverse engineered as as something that is exactly that we just haven't figured it out yet that doesn't mean that it's wrong um, it just means we haven't figured it out so I, I just love that blend of eastern and western I think it's really really cool
0: Awesome. So I'm kind of also curious, like, for the people who don't really know that much about acupuncture in general, like, if you had to explain the difference between, like, traditional Chinese acupuncture and, like, the dry needling that is really popular out here in the West, what's the difference between the two?
1: Yeah, I I think that, um, you know, acupuncture is the overlying um, is the overlying, uh, category, I think. So I think a good analogy is, is someone tells you that they're a physician. Your first question is, oh, what kind of physician are you? Right? So you could be a cardiologist, you could be a neurologist, you could be an orthopedist, all these different types of, of physicians who went to medical school and then kind of specialized in a certain area. So traditional Chinese medicine or just Chinese acupuncture is very much rooted in Eastern medicine, but there's certainly traditional Chinese acupuncturists that function more um, from a Western medicine background. And so under Western medical acupuncture, there's a lot of different things. There's superficial needling and trigger point dry needling and, and just dry needling as a whole and intramuscular stimulation. And so there's all of these things that sort of fall under the Western medical acupuncture category and dry needling is one of them. And because dry needling is so rooted in that Western medicine and muscles, tendons, ligaments, bones, right? These sort of things that are, are very, very understood by physical therapists or chiropractors or athletic trainers or, or people that, that work in that those sort of health cares. It's just kind of a, a nice natural marriage. Um, and so, you know, that traditional Chinese acupuncture is, is really rooted in Eastern medicine. Dry needling is very, very rooted in Western medicine. But of course, like anything, right, nothing is black and white in my mind. Um, and so there's, there's overlap in all of And all of those similarities and there's differences in both of those things. And, um, you know, I mean, I I see an acupuncturist when I'm in town, I I go see a a traditional Chinese acupuncturist who's in town, but she's also an athletic trainer. So she's got some Western medicine practices to her. So um, again, I just really love that blend of Eastern and Western. I think it's, it's really the complete package
0: nice now i kind of wanted to bring up like other modalities so you already brought up instrument assisted so i'm kind of curious like what's your opinion on it from guasha to like what you see now with you know grass and rock blades and things like that like do you ever use those things in your practice
1: i do yeah i you know i use um you know a tool is a tool i tend to use some of the hot grips tools those tend to be my go-to um and you know, the, the tools, they all have their little variances. And I and I think it's really individual compared to, to what fits in your hand and what you like. But at the end of the day, any type of manual therapy is about introducing a mechanical stimulus into the body through the process of mechanical transduction. The body can take that mechanical energy and convert it to chemical energy. And so whenever there's scar tissue, whenever there's an injury, um, we know right there's different types of collagen in the body. Soft tissues are typically made up of, you know, tendons and ligaments and muscles are typically made up of a type one collagen. There's some other collagens thrown in there, right? But the majority of it is a type one collagen. When we have scar, a type three collagen replaces it. And type three collagen has more of an irregular, um, has more of an irregular. Uh, Formation to it. The covalent bonding is much weaker. So it's just not as strong of a tissue. So if we can introduce with a mechanical stimulus, like the utilization of a tool, whatever tool of choice you have, we can begin to ask the body to take that mechanical stimulus and convert it to chemical energy. And then that can help realign some of that type three scar tissue. It can help with the covalent bonding and can actually help convert that tissue more into a type one collagen, which is really what we want. So I think that that there is some, we can stimulate some fibroblastic activity in the area. Um, We can help from a pain control standpoint because anytime we touch, we're stimulating A-beta fibers, which are going to help dampen the pain signals that are going to the central nervous system. So we can help from a pain standpoint. We're engaging, we're touching with our patient, which is really important from a psychological standpoint. So I think any of our manual therapies um, really sort of work off of that basis. And so whatever tool you choose, you know, is, I think it's just a tool. And I think sometimes we start to define ourselves by our tools too much. Um, there's really more similarities than there are differences in them. And, and so I, you know, I try to look at that for sure.
0: Okay. The other but one I wanted to bring up was, uh, cupping. Cause I remember I had someone on my show that chatted about it and I posted it into a group that this person's going to talk about cupping. And a lot of people in this Facebook group is like, uh, oh, cupping's not supported by research. There's not enough info on it and blah, 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 blah. So I'm kind of Curious about your opinion about cupping? Yeah.
1: Oh gosh, I love when people want to argue about how there's no evidence for needling, instrument assisted or cupping, right? And I'm like, okay, well, you know what? These things have been around for thousands of years. When BFR is around in the year 3025, I'm not. Don't use BFR. I definitely don't mean to pick on that. But I'm just like, like people want to talk about all of these things, things that are around for thousands of years are around for thousands of years for a reason, right? And just because the absence of evidence doesn't mean that there's an evidence of absence, right? Like there is, just because we don't know why something works doesn't mean it doesn't work. We just haven't figured it out yet. And so the fact that cupping has been around for thousands of years, and when you do a lit review, you can actually find a decent amount of research. The problem is, is most of it's in Russian and the most of it's in Chinese. Not many people uh, in the this hemisphere speak Chinese or Russian, so it's really difficult to read and and look at the research. So, with that said, thanks to Michael Phelps, a lot of us are doing research on cupping, right? Because people want to figure out what's going on and what it's doing. And I think that again, just because we don't know why it works, doesn't mean it doesn't work, right? We just figured out what ice does. Like we had we have had ice wrong for decades. So if we don't even really understand how ice works until like within the last couple of years, like give me a break. Like we don't understand how anything works. Like we give ourselves way too much credit. So with that said, I think it's important to keep an open mind. And so when we look at, in the absence of evidence, we have to support and make clinical decisions based on scientific and, and foundational science. Right. And so when we look at what cupping does, If the only reason you institute cupping into your practice, in my opinion, is to periodize your soft tissue work, I think that's a good thing, right? So if we look from a strength and conditioning standpoint or a massage or rehab, whatever background you come from, think about foam rolling, right? We give our clients foam rolls and massage sticks and schedule massages and do all of these things with our patients every single day, right? Like my athlete, oh my gosh, they just got done with practice. They just walked in the door, hey, go home and foam roll, let's warm up. Right, they just come off the court. I'm like, oh, let's foam roll, right? Let's cool down. Oh, it's an off day. Let's foam roll. Like there's nothing else we do in our personal practices every single day. And if you do it right, think about doing a bicep curl with 10 pounds. You do a bicep curl every day for, ten, for six weeks with 10 pounds, you might start off really hard, but by day 45, there's no stimulus anymore, right? Your body's adapted to it. So so we know that the body likes periodization. That's why we we have periodization. We have microcycles and mesocycles and macrocycles. And, and we do all of this periodization work. And yet from a soft tissue standpoint, the only thing we do with our clients is compression, 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 right? So instrument assisted, massage stick, foam rolls, massage with a person, it's all compression. So the first, so if we look at cupping, What it does is it distracts tissue, and we see that under ultrasound. We know that there is a distraction, and what that distraction is, we don't know. Is it blood? Is it lymph? Is it some type of interstitial fluid? Um, Is it a, a separation of the fascial fibers, right? Like we're still trying to figure those things out, but bottom line, we see a distraction under ultrasound when we put a cup on somebody. So is distraction better or worse than compression? I don't know, but it's different. And what I do know through concepts of periodization is that the body likes different and the body needs to periodize stimulus in order to adapt. So I can't always just use compression when I want to do soft tissue. Cupping now provides me a way to do distraction. And I think that's a good thing.
0: That was really well said. I thought it was probably the best description I got, but, um, the other thing I wanted to bring up is, like, what's your experience working with chiropractors? Because it kind of seems like there's a divide between the Cairo world and the physio world. And, like, even at the clinic I work at, we're trying to find a physio. But I think maybe because the, a chiro actually owns it, there might be some sort of clash. But I'm kind of wondering if you can shed some light on that.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, it's unfortunate. I know in the U.S. there's a lot of... Um, People are defined by the letters after their names. And, you know, I just believe way more in collaboration than anything. There is so much to be done to return an athlete or a patient from their injury to to whatever activity they want to do. And I can't physically do it all, right? When we were talking about nutrition earlier, it's like, you know, I'm trying to increase my knowledge on nutrition Because I'm not an expert in nutrition, so I can speak to the macros and I can kind of help a client like clean it up a little bit. That's not my area of expertise, right? I need to call in somebody to help me with that. Same thing from a sleep standpoint. I understand sleep hygiene. I can definitely modify and counsel my patient based for sleep hygiene. But like if someone's got a real sleep disturbance, I better call in a sleep expert to figure that out. Same thing from manipulation. I can manipulate a lot of different things, but gosh dang, a chiropractor is absolutely the number one person to manipulate a joint. So if I can't get it, I got to call in an expert. Um, same thing from from a, a surgical standpoint, right? I don't do surgery. So if my patient needs surgery, I got to call in a physician. Like I can't let my ego be the issue. We have to have an athlete-centered model or a patient-centered model. If we don't have a patient-centered model, then all we're doing is, is making it egocentric. And people's rehab is not about me. It's about them. And if I don't put my ego aside, leave my letters at the door, and call upon other people that, that have areas of expertise that I don't in the best interest of my patient, then, then that's just borderline malpractice. I mean, I, I have to be able to work within a team with people with different letters after their names um, and, re, and respect that.
0: I love it. Um, so the next thing I wanted to bring up is what's the one, like, thing that you'll see in the clinic all the time where you're like, oh, this is an easy thing to treat? And then on the other side of the question, what is the one condition that's really difficult for you to treat?
1: Hmm that's a good question um, I don't think anything is really easy to treat <laughs> Okay. <laughs> I think that it's all attached to like it's all attached to a human right so it just sort of depends on what's their life goals I mean it, because it depends on um, it just really kind of depends on the person's life goals and sort of where they're at and so uh, a rotator cuff tendinopathy or plantar fasciitis can be really difficult to deal with Um or it can be really, really easy to deal with, right, based on patient's goals, based on their core morbidities, based on their psychological and their social support that they have going on. So I really kind of feel like there is no easier, hard diagnosis. I feel like we have to remember that it's attached to a person. And um, the, the seemingly simplest thing can be hugely problematic for someone and um, someone that's really complicated in a really healthy system can be can be pretty easy to fix so so yeah that's a tough question to answer just from a pure diagnosis standpoint
0: no fair enough um so the other thing i wanted to bring up is what's exciting you in the industry right now like that you've read that you've seen and you're like oh i can't wait that in a year from now this thing's going to be more research or something like that what's exciting you in the industry right now
1: yeah that's a great question i think um you know, as far as tools go, uh, for good reason, right? I'm obviously into the needling stuff and and it's tougher for me to to get education formal education on that in in this country. And so really sort of studying and looking at from my own knowledge base Eastern medicine and trying to understand that a little bit more and how that applies to to what uh, I'm doing from a Western medical perspective is really where a lot of my brain is at and and a lot of my um, skill. Uh, that I'm sort of focusing on, and that's why I'm, 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 like I said, going to the UK and to Spain and to Italy, and and to try to just keep continuing to kind of go down that path. I think from a system standpoint, you know, fascia is a really, really interesting. Yeah um, tissue that is of course not new, um, but seems to be new in everybody's interest. And I've definitely had an interest in that over the last five years. And I think it's funny that, that this is sort of the new thing that people are talking about, but it's exciting for me because I've been looking at it for so long, um, that I'm really, really excited about, about that. And so, um, because people are getting more interested in it, we're looking at how do we train fascia, right? We know now that, that superficial fascia is a pain generator. We know that deep fascia is a is a force generator. We know that there's certain spots and areas in the fascia that are like a keystone, right? So if we address that area, a lot of the other fascial issues get better. Um, we know that we can train fascia, right? Or we're starting to look at how do we train fascia. And I think that we've already been doing it from a plyometric standpoint. I, I don't think as we get more information on this, it's going to change how we're training, but I think it's going to change why we're training. And so from a, a plyometric standpoint, for example, we always would talk about the concentric and amortization phases and eccentric portions of what a plyometric is. But really, when we're looking at the at the research, it's about stiffness, right? And that fascia kind of provides that total body or total limb stiffness that really allows us to move a little bit more like a kangaroo versus like, like something that's going to absorb force and then reproduce force. So I think fascia is just such an interesting thing when it comes to pain and when it comes to training and and i love that that this is an area that people are being excited about right now
0: yeah like i just finished thomas myers uh, anatomy trains book and just seeing the photos of how it's connected and so many different lines of fascia I'm just it kind of just blew my mind i'm like holy crap we need to like look into this more and just change everything that we've been doing yeah,
1: yeah. really really cool there's there's a great um a great um Documentary that's coming out. It's called The Secret Life of Fascia. And it's by a guy named Bruce Schoenfeld. And, and so you can find that on Facebook. And so he just released part one, there's part two and part three coming out. And so um, I'm really grateful to play a very, very small role in part three of that documentary. And so, but the documentary as a whole is really unbelievable and um, will help the layperson and the clinician alike for sure. So definitely put that on your list of things to search.
0: Perfect. Um, So maybe for the last question, because we're coming up on to our time here, uh, if people wanted to find out more about you, uh, where can they find you online? What projects do you have coming out? And anything else you want to plug on my show, you can right now.
1: Uh, Awesome. Yeah, my two websites, um, structureandfunction.net and suthelsony.com. Those are both my websites. Um, most of our education stuff is going to be on structureandfunction.net. Right now, that's mostly a dry needling site and everything else I do is on sufelsony.com, but it's going to start to kind of move over. So keep an eye on both of those sites. Um, you can look at my book and get a free preview of my book, bridging the gap from rehab to performance on that sufelsony.com site. Um, so all of our, my performance stuff is there. And then you can find me on social media. under Sue Falsoni, uh, and you can, um, yeah, and so projects that are coming out are just really, it's going to be more some online webinar-based stuff and some online education and kind of really moving more towards into some of these bridging the gap from rehab to performance concepts that that we've been talking about. So some exciting things on the horizon for sure.
0: I had my microphone mute this entire time. Um, Are you going to any of the Perform Betters or any other speaking engagements? I
1: am. I'm so excited. I'm going to be in Rhode Island, and I'm going to be in um, Long Beach. Awesome. And so my topic this year is the nervous system. What do we need to know from a strength and conditioning perspective? So um, I did it uh, at the one day in Boston um, in March, which was super fun, and so we'll do it again in Rhode Island and in Long Beach.
0: Perfect. So thank you so much for your time. This was amazing.
1: My pleasure. Thanks so much for having me on.
0: Alright, so that's going to wrap up another amazing interview with Sue Falzone. Hopefully you enjoyed it as much as I did. And again, thank you, thank you, thank you for supporting this amazing show. Still no update on my damn book, but I am hopeful it will get released, it will be shared with the world, and it's going to be amazing because every single one of you, I feel like you're supporting me, so that's, that's a good feeling to have, knowing that during this time of being stressed to get this book out it's getting me through so be patient it's going to be well worth it share 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 this podcast with friends and family and i'll be forever grateful you guys are amazing thank you so much until next time